Well, it's our time to study the Word of God together, so I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and return to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning, and we have really just begun to crack the surface of all that God has for us in this study of this great epistle that Paul has given to the church, and I want to begin our time this morning just by reading for us once again, so we have it in our minds, the entire section from verse 18 all the way through the end of chapter 1, verse 32. You can follow along in your own translation as I read. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, because God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There's a verse in the book of Galatians that I believe sums up this entire section of our study in a most profound way. It is again one of those foundational principles for our Christian living, one of the presuppositional truths, if you will, that we must never forget as Christians. It's found in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. And it says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now that truth is not difficult for us to understand. Particularly for us here in the Northeast and even those that live in a similar kind of agrarian society, we are surrounded by fields and fields in which various things grow. I'm always reminded that as I drive here to the church and pass the fields just up the road here. The principle that Galatians 6-7 teaches is very clear. It is very easy for us as people to comprehend. Whatever it is that you put into the ground, in time, the fruit of that seed will Come out of the ground. So, as the axiom goes, if you put into the ground a kernel of corn, 
it is corn that you can expect to receive from the ground because you put that seed in the ground. What you sow, you reap. And that conclusion can be then said to be just simply common, God-given sense. If you do A, you will reap B. To expect something else would be absolute insanity because of this axiomatic principle. What you sow, you will reap. It is the way it is because God created it that way. If you are a parent, and many of us are, then I am confident from time to time that very principle has impacted the teaching that you have attempted to impart to your children. You have said to your children in one way or another, if you do this, you will reap these consequences simply out of love because you desire them to experientially know that principle, that whatever they are sowing, whatever they are doing in their life, there will be an inevitable reaping from it. And this is the principle that we see in full view in chapter 1 of Romans. It is the graphic picture of the very reality of the nature of man with the outflow of this principle being seen. What man reaps is a direct result of what man has sown. Now as we think this through, we need to remember that that very idea flies directly in the face of much of what the world believes and professes concerning the condition of man. The world does not believe that man reaps what he sows in the, in the sense of who man is. The world believes that man doesn't have a, 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 a principle of his nature that is not good. When it comes to man's nature, the world denies the sowing and reaping principle. So that from this point on in Romans, from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through to the end of chapter 4 of Romans, the Apostle Paul is showing and highlighting this theological truth, this reality that man is not by his very nature good or neutral. He is not in some place whereby he can just decide on his own to do this way or do this way. Man by his very nature is in fact wicked. That is his seed. That is what he is. And when I say man is wicked, I do not want any of us to think for a moment that man is as wicked as man could be. We are born into wickedness. We are wicked people by our very nature. Now that does not mean that we exercise that wickedness in the ways that we could. But rather, what it says is that we are, by our human nature, innately bent by the very way, by the very seed of which is our nature, from the things of God toward the things of God which only reap wickedness. That's the reality of mankind. This is exactly what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 14. Verses 1 to 3, here's what it says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, and yet they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. That is a comprehensive statement from God concerning the nature of all humanity. All people are sinners. Why? Because all people are corrupt in their very beings. The very seed is wicked, and the very fruit is wickedness. Every heart, by nature, is against God. 
In fact, there is no one in and of their own nature who seeks after God. In fact, if you go to the book of Romans and turn just over to chapter 3, Paul is going to repeat those very words from Psalm 14 in chapter 3, in verses 10 through 12, when he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I think sometimes God put that there for those of us who want to say, yeah, that's everybody else but not me. It's true there are wicked people in the world. In fact, it's true the whole world is wicked. But I'm not one of those kinds of people. There is not one, no, not even one. So this is then the seed of man. And it is what man has sown. He, by his very nature, has chosen... To ignore God and believe, he has refused to believe what God has declared concerning him. And thereby, man is reaping the fruit of that planting. And the sad result is that much of what man might believe, that through his own efforts he can somehow deal with this sin issue and try to improve his state before a holy and true God, what truly takes place is not a closer relationship with God, but rather a commitment to the very horrific sins that he could commit. The most horrific of all would be prideful self-worship, which in reality is a denial of God altogether. The person who sows self-righteousness reaps not a closer relationship with God, but an actually a deeper deception in sin and a further alienation from God. So what we see taking place in godless humanity today as the same that has been taking place throughout all of history it is not man ascending closer and closer to God by his quote-unquote desires to have some kind of religious relationship, but rather man is in a perpetual descent farther away from God. Why? Because in his own self-imposed deception and denial of God, he seeks to worship self, and that is a complete denial or alienation from what is the true God. So it's not a pretty picture. In fact, it only gets worse as time marches on. Why? Because man cannot stop the slide down the slippery slope. Man cannot cure his own problem. Man has no way to stop his descent into idolatry because he is, as Romans 6 will tell us, a slave to sin. Sin owns the unconverted man. It is sin that is his master, and it is sin that he sows continually, and it is the consequences of that that he reaps in his life. In fact, the great allegorical writer C.S. Lewis once wrote a book entitled The Problem of Pain. The Problem of Pain. Maybe some of you have read it. In that book, he states this conclusion of man. Quote, the lost, that is the unconverted, those who do not know Jesus Christ, the lost man, enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, unquote. I like the way he says that. The man who does not want to have anything to do with God, the man who, who sets God aside and rejects God altogether and does not seek the light that God has shown him already, he, he demands his own freedom. God says, okay, have your freedom. He has the freedom he has demanded, and he is therefore enslaved to self. All the while deceived in believing that he is independent. And so what he has demanded to live outside and independent of God's design, he has reaped the fruit of that decision 
and been enslaved to self and all that comes with those consequences. And that's the major point that we've been studying in verses 18 through 32. Nothing could be more frightening. Nothing could be more frightening as a consequence for sowing than what Paul describes in verses 24 to 32. I mean, it's, it's really hard for us as, as humanity, as God is speaking, it's really hard for us to hear that His wrath is revealed from heaven. That's hard to hear against unrighteousness. And yet there's some wiggle room. And yet when you finally get down to verse 24 through the end of the chapter, it really gets bad. The consequences are so severe. The consequences are so hellish that it's almost impossible to read this without emotion. Man, by his very nature, by his very makeup, by the very seed of who he is, has chosen against God's design, he has chosen to sow the seed of further rebellion against and a denial of God, and God's answer to that reality is abandonment. Abandonment. And Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. That revealing of God's wrath is seen through God's abandonment of man to himself. The abandonment of God to man to his own devices. Three times in just these final nine verses of chapter 1, Paul tells us that God gave them over. God gave them over. Who's the them? Rebellious man. Rebellious man. Those who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Those of chapter 3 that says all have turned aside. Who's the them? Humanity. Every single one of them. In totality and individually. What man has reaped as a fruit of his rebellion against God is God leaving him to his own desires. And when that occurs, beloved, nothing could be worse. Nothing. The late Puritan writer Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You ought to read it. The elders and I are reading it soon. He makes this quote in that book. It's a frightening, frightening quote. He said, God is never more angry. Listen to this. This is just so incredible. God is never more angry than when he does nothing. Think about that. God is never more angry than when he does nothing. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The wrath of God is revealed, so God gave man over. It's a frightening reality because when mankind is left to his own sinful nature, when God's merciful restraint is removed, when God no longer restrains the veracity of your own sinfulness and your own, your own humanity, your own very nature, the lostness of, of the deadness of your soul, He's not only, man is not only more vulnerable to the schemes of Satan himself, but he also suffers the damning destruction that his own sin works in his life and for eternity. This is... Nothing more frightening than these words in all of Scripture that God would give us over. Man sows rebellion. Man sows rejection of God. Man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. That's how Paul says it. And how that suppression is carried out is delineated in verses 19 through 23. We've already studied that section, how that rebellion is carried out. 
that man begins to worship himself in all kinds of forms. And so now what man reaps is God's abandoning wrath and its full consequences upon him. Verses 24 to 32 shows us what that looks like. Now, because Paul says God gave them over three times in these verses, I want us to see the three consequences that man has been given over to. These are the consequences. I'm going to list them for us this way. Man has been abandoned to the core of his sinfulness. The core of his sinfulness, verses 24 and 25. Man has been abandoned to the character of his sinfulness, verses 26 and 27. And man has been abandoned to the coverage of his sinfulness, verses 28 to 32. Core, character, and coverage. You can, of course, write any way you want. You can list them any way you want. You don't have to use the words I have. I'll explain these as we go uh, so that we're all not confused. But just keep that in your mind. That's how I'm going to hang our thoughts on the core of his sinfulness, the character of his sinfulness, and the coverage of his sinfulness. This is the consequences that God has given us for turning our back on God. But suffice it to say that these are the totality of man's sinfulness altogether. The source is his core. How it is lived out is his character. And how far-reaching it is, is his coverage. And just as a side note, each one of these is a further spiral away from God. Another ring down, if you will, in the descension of man from God so that coverage of man's sin is the worst of all. Let's begin to look at just the core of man's sinfulness. The core of man's sinfulness. Verses 24 and 25, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You notice Paul begins by referring us back to what we've already learned in verses 18 through 23. Paul says, therefore, and we know in our study of the scriptures, when you see therefore, you ask that simple question, what is the therefore, therefore? And it always takes us back. It always refers back. The answer to Paul's question is that Paul has a desire that we know why God has given mankind over to these consequences. And it has everything to do with man's rebellion against God. There are consequences here in verses 24 to 32, and these consequences are the reaping of the seed from verses 18 to 23. Man sows, and this is what he's reaping. Although God has clearly made himself known to each and every man, man has denied God. Man has declared himself to be wise in his denials of God. And so thereby he recreates God according to his own definition. Therefore, God gave him over. Gave them over is one word in the original language. It's a very intense word, by the way. It, it means literally to hand someone over. To hand someone over. For example, in Mark chapter 1, it translates the word this way. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The, the taking in custody is the same word. It's the same word in Mark 1.14 as used here in Romans chapter 1. Some of your translations might even have it in Mark chapter 1 as put in prison. He He was put into that place. In other words, he was handed over to someone else. He was given over. 
So it's a, a judicial, a, a legal idea, and because of that, it also carries the judgment concept. So when it says gave over, it's a, it's a legal, judicial act of judgment. Someone being given over to judgment. That's the idea. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter says that the rebellious angels have been delivered to the pits of darkness. Here's what it says. Just listen, beginning in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation to keep them or to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. The words committing them in verse 4 of that text is the same word here. God's wrath is partially manifest, partially shown through his handing man over to the very judgment that man has willfully chosen. Look at what Paul says. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Impurity. This is the very core of man's sinfulness. This is the very centrifuge. God is giving man over to the very core of his sinfulness. To an impure heart. That's the very core of man. It's because the very core of man's heart loves impurity that God has abandoned men to that desire. And so we know that man is not a victim of his circumstances, don't we? Man is not a victim. He is not someone that is a victim of just bad things that seem to happen. He is not controlled by things that go on around him. So like an unreasoning dog, he has no, no way. He just responds to the appropriate stimuli. That, that's what the world would say. That's not man. That's the foolish speculations of an unrighteous wisdom. Man is choosing his way by the very inner disposition of his own sinful heart. He has bent that direction and so man goes that direction. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you don't have to believe it for it to be true. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. It's out of the heart that those things come. It isn't that someone does that because they just had a bad day. No, it's the very core of who they are. Because of that reality, the Bible warns us as believers in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it warns this, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. The world says, let's just change people's behavior. The Bible says, no, let's change their heart. And when you change their heart, their behavior will follow. 
The heart then, when spoken of in Scripture, metaphorically covers the very basic nature of man. It's man. It's not the pumping organ in there. It's, it's who you are. Your very inner person. Our very inner being. The character of who we are. That's what drives us. It does not mean we hear commonly in our day It does not mean that it simply represents our feelings and our emotions. That's what the world says. And even our feelings and our emotions can be deceptive. They're subject to all kinds of stimuli and they can deceive us. But the heart biblically, the heart when we look at it in Scripture, speaks to what drives those feelings, what drives those emotions. It speaks to the very will of who we are. That's the core of us. The world says, follow your heart. (laughs) Don't, don't do that. Don't follow your heart. Follow what God says. Let it confront your heart. So what Paul is saying is that the very will of man, at the very core of man, is this driving force. It's driven, notice, by its own lusts. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. Lust is a word in Scripture for strong desire. Strong desire. Epithumia. If you or I have a strong desire for something, it would be right for us to use that biblical language and say we lust after it. We have a strong desire for it. We lust after it. It doesn't necessarily have to be some sexual thing. We, we've attached the word lust to sexual things, but, but you can lust for all kinds of things. You can have a strong desire for all kinds of things. A lust, by biblical definitions, is simply something we pursue with real great fervor, with, with a lot of energy. We lust after it. And yet, in the Bible, it's normally used to describe sinful things. Godless things. So think about it. The act of sinning, the act of sinning. When, when someone sins, it, it's a sin of either in the mind or in the action. Something happens, something against God by way of sinning against others. The act of sinning is produced, is produced by the strong desire in your heart. That's what produces it. In other words, sinful activity comes out of the desire of the will for something that is forbidden. It might be a desire that's forbidden. It might be a thought that's forbidden. It might be an object that's forbidden. In fact, James, in James chapter 1, verse 14, he says it this way. Each one is tempted when, I think this is interesting because we put temptation at the, at the, in the, uh, farther down the line, but James says when you're tempted, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. You see, we would put temptation somewhere differently. We would put temptation outside of that. But James is saying it's lust, it's strong desire that drives temptation. We would say, no, no, that temptation drives my lust. But that's not how it is. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So temptation doesn't start the process. Temptation is rather... uh, carried out our own sinful desire that carries us away and entices us so that then we are tempted to take the bite out of the apple. It's our own lust. Man reaps the fruit of God's wrath. That wrath is seen through God handing him over to his own baseness in his own heart, his own core of very deadness and the net effect is self-willed impurity. That's the net effect. God gives you over 
God gave natural man over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Purity is an interesting word. It's it's akatharsia. Akatharsia. It may sound familiar to some of us because it is from the same root word as we get the word cathartic. Cathartic. Sometimes we use that as an adjective. That was a very cathartic experience. We'll say that. Cathartic basically means to purge or to cleanse. That was a very cleansing experience. When someone purifies their body in some physical way, it would it would be that kind of thing, a, a cathartic experience. It's a cleansing. Well, it's just the opposite with a catharsis. A catharsis is a general term for uncleanness. Uncleanness, not a purging, but a but a taking on of everything that is evil and wicked. It's often used in the ancient times to describe things that were decaying, things that were dying, they were unclean. In a moral sense, it's normally used to describe those things that were used and associated with sexual impurity. So acatharsis was usually used in a moral way to describe those who were being sexually immoral, those who were outside the bounds of what God had designed. So instead of mankind purging himself of uncleanness through his rejection of God, which man thinks, oh, I I don't need you, God. I'm going to get away and do it on my own. I'll become righteous on my own. Instead of man purging himself from his unrighteousness in any of those kinds of ways because he had rejected God, he in his own self-righteousness has plunged himself into greater and greater uncleanness. Instead of running from impurity in all of its forms, Because of his self-righteousness, God gives him over to the full reflection of every kind of impurity. The only reason man didn't do that prior is because God restrains. But what Paul is exposing for us here in verse 24 is that the outflow of the sowing of rebellion in the very heart of man has come the very fruit of complete uncleanness. And the net effect upon man, the net effect upon his self-willed impurity is what? That their bodies might be dishonored among them. See, this is the point. When man seeks to place himself in the position of glory, when man seeks to place himself in the position of God so that he seeks his own way in life, when he seeks to satisfy his own physical body, in the rejection of God, he does that through every kind of shameful sin, particularly sexual sin. And God has said, have it your way. Have it your way. And because God has said, have it your way, the physical bodies, along with their very souls, are dishonored among them. Dishonored. You know what that word is? That, that's to abuse. To abuse. That's, that's the literal rendering or the, the basic meaning. To abuse something is to use it for something that it was not intended for. When we abuse things, that we, we're, we're doing something to them or we're using them in a way in which they weren't intended. And the body, both physically and spiritually, was never intended for sexual impurity. And yet, that is what we see running rampant in society today, isn't it? The attention given, especially in our Western society alone, just for the care of the body is staggering. I mean, just in the United States alone, what we spend on health care and what we spend on beautifying and, and image driving and all of these kinds of things, it's staggering. And yet, every form of body mutilation is widely accepted today. I'll just go ahead and do it, whatever you feel. It's okay. Go ahead. No big deal. 
As long as you're not bothering somebody else, go for it. The tragic irony is that more, the more that man exalts human life for his own sake, the more that man pursues all of his own desires of his heart in every way, and God lets him do whatever he wants, the more he is debased and the more he is brought down. Sexual promiscuity and perversion of every kind are glamorized in every corner. Why? Why do we see that? Because man has rejected God. That's why. The reason you see the the sexual realities of our day all the way back from the early 60s and even times before then, even into the ancient world, has nothing to do with man just gaining his own sense and saying, oh, yeah, we can do it our way and all look at women can be whoever they want and men can be whoever they want. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. Go ahead and do whatever you want. It really is no big deal. You can have children. You don't have to have children. You can get rid of unborn children. You can do whatever you want so your sexual agenda meets its very thing. The only reason we have all of that is because man has rejected God. And in the name of humanism, in the name of humanity, mankind has become not more human, but rather dehumanized so much so that we now abuse each other in every kind of way. We abuse each other sexually. We abuse each other criminally. We abuse each other economically. We abuse each other verbally. And the list goes on and on and on. Really nothing new under the sun, is there? not new. It's not new at all. We know what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. We know what he said. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. You know what insanity is, right? Doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. That's insanity. That's what man does. And so the person that indulges in sexual immorality not only sins against the Lord, but also sins against their own body. They dishonor their own body. That's the point Paul's making here. This is the very core of man. This is the very seed. Even though the body is not for immorality... Even though the body is for the Lord, the Lord for the body, man uses it for however he wants. He uses it for his own pleasure in whatever way he wants. So the reason there's so much impurity in the world is because our world has turned its back on God. God has removed his restraint. He said, have it your way. God has left man to his own pollution. Have it your way. The outcome is every kind of uncleanness known to man. It's a grotesque picture, isn't it? It's a pretty ugly start. None of us who have any kind of relationship with God would ever go into a store and buy rotten fruit. And yet, this is the picture of men. The very creation of God, the very jewel of God's very creation, swimming in a cesspool of willful sin. Because of that, they refuse to acknowledge God at all. That's what Paul says in verse 25, where they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That says it all, doesn't it? That says it all. Having suppressed the only real truth, having pushed aside the only thing that can stem back any kind of core reality of sinfulness within us, having pushed away the light that we were given in unrighteousness, the only thing left for man is to submit that the only thing left, and the only thing left when you throw truth out is a lie. That's it. 
There isn't some neutral zone where you can stand and go, well, I'm just not sure yet. I think I'll decide over here. No, you are either in truth or in lie. That's it. The very basic truth of God's existence and that truth being implanted within every man and by that existence the right to demand honor and glory from the very creation that he created. Man has rejected it and therefore been rejected in totality. And man has fully embraced his own fabricated lie. Listen, to forsake God is to forsake truth. If you forsake God, you have forsaken truth. And to forsake Christ is to forsake God. Are you listening to me? Are you tracking with me? If you forsake God, you forsake truth. If you forsake Christ, you've forsaken God. Why? Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You cannot forsake God without forsaking Christ. So if you forsake God, you've forsaken the truth. And if you've forsaken God, you've forsaken Christ. And to forsake Christ is to forsake the truth. Why? Because God and Christ are one, and Jesus said, I am the truth. So to forsake God, or to forsake Christ, or to forsake the truth, is to reveal in full color your slavery to the lie. If you say, I'm not following Christ, you're forsaking the truth. You're living in a lie. When you live in a lie, you show yourself to be a child of the father of lies, Satan himself. The tragedy today, it was the same in Paul's day. The tragedy is that many claim to have a relationship with God, but in reality have merely become willful buyers of the world's system of morality, which is nothing more than self-worship. And so Paul ends these two verses by saying that when men turn from truth, which is what they did, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. When men turn from truth, the inevitable outcome is that they worship and serve self rather than God. That's what happens. And it is God who is blessed forever. I think that's Paul's way of simply having us look up after we've been taken through such a slow and low place. (laughs) The core of man is very bad. And Paul says it's God who's to be blessed forever. And it shakes us out of that and causes us to look back at the right place. The only way out is through acknowledging God. God says in his word, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The name, Jesus Christ. Well, that's the core. Not a good start. It only gets worse. We can only take so much for one day. So we'll get to the character next time. Let's pray. Father, this is your day. Every day is your day, but particularly the Lord's day. You set it aside that we might worship you. You have called us to that point. We worship you in our singing. We worship you in our prayers. We worship you when we hear your word. But we really are engaged in that worship when we receive it and thereby do it. Lord, these are 
convicting words from the Apostle Paul to us, challenging words, informative words. This was our condition before Jesus Christ. This was who we were by nature, slaves to the very reality of the core of our being. And yet you in Christ, by faith, because of your great grace and mercy, we have new life. We have a new nature. We have the mind of Christ. And now we can do what is right and honoring before you. We can mortify the deeds of the flesh as we will learn further on in this epistle. We can live by the power of your Spirit, submitting ourselves to Him as we acknowledge the truth of your Word and begin to do it. Lord, I pray that that would be our desire this day as people of you. Lord, there's probably some here, I don't know, I'm sure, some who don't know you. Maybe this is the first time they ever heard these things. Maybe they're sitting there in their own chair and they're saying to themselves, you know, I want to disagree with what was said, but I know this is right. Lord, cause them in their heart to repent turn from their sinfulness, embrace you truly by faith. Help them to not fight against that, crush their will, cause their heart to tremble at your word. To know that every jot and tittle, every little piece is going to happen, it's going to come true. You are the living and true God. Help them, Lord, not to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As we think about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and share communion together here in just a moment. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be right. That those who know you, that those who understand these elements, this table, that their hearts would be right with each other. There wouldn't be sin in us that we know about causing your name to be blasphemed because we're unwilling to ask to forget for forgiveness. Lord, help us to, to be right in your eyes. Show us the things that we need to confess that we might be right with you as we walk according to your name and according to your word. So thank you for these things this morning. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.